we are interrupting our series in Exodus this morning because it is Communion Sunday. And so I've come up with uh, a message uh, just to insert for this particular Sunday. And it's a message very much unlike the messages that I normally do. This is very much outside of my comfort zone. Uh, this is not a message that fits my personality or my gifting or whatever it is, but I truly believe that it, this is the message that God led me to bring this morning for whatever reason. We are going to take our scripture reading from Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. And I was just thinking of it as there was more developments through the week, that in Revelation chapter 4, John is presenting God as the great creator, the one who is in control of all things. And, um, and then in Revelation chapter 5, we see God as redeemer, the lion of the tribe of Judah as displayed as the lamb slain. And he does all of this because in the chapters following 4 and 5, things begin to get pretty chaotic. And so he's reminding the readers, look, yeah, it's going to seem pretty chaotic. You know, what, what I'm about to tell you that's going to happen, it's going to seem like things are maybe spiraling out of control. So in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, we are in God's throne room where God is still on the throne. And nothing changes that. And I think that's an encouragement we can take for today. You know what? Things may seem a little out of control at times. God is still on the throne. And we're looking at that, just one very small part of that today. In today's scripture reading, the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is taken up in the spirit into heaven where he is witness to the awesome splendor of the throne room of God. There are four living creatures, or living ones, or it's really only one word in Greek, livings. And around the throne, they are around the throne, and they are singing a song, night and day. And John records the words of the song for us. So here is today's scripture, taken from the second half of Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's our scripture for today. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon it. Father in heaven, we come before your throne this morning and ask that you would open our eyes to the truth that you have given us this morning in these few words. We ask that the Spirit of God would fill this room in a mighty way, comforting our hearts and giving us peace as we are living in a world that is somewhat uh, chaotic at this point. We thank you for the grace you have shown this part of the world. We continue to enjoy uh, a, a great degree of security and we thank you for the reminders of everything that you have blessed us with. As we enter into communion service this morning, you, we just pray that your presence would remain with us throughout, that we would uh, be mindful of why it is that you have directed us to uh, 
enjoy this time together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Open our eyes and hearts to it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we begin, I just want to, again, a reminder, this is not a message that's going to fit. Pete, would you please forgive me? Just even preemptively forgive me for the message I'm about to bring. But I want to try and pick, paint a picture in your mind that really sums up what we are going to be discussing this morning. The picture I want you to have in your mind is a grand old church. So, Josiah, if you can go to the next slide. There's a grand old church with beautiful and intricate stained glass windows. And as you stand inside on a sunny Sunday morning, there is a beauty in that sanctuary that makes you sense that you are in a special place. But I also want you to imagine that you move outside the building. You can go to the next slide. You move outside the building. And now it's the dark of night. And you can see the glow of warm light emanating from that stained glass window that makes you look there and think there is something special happening in there. What is that something special? What is it? According to Jonathan Edwards, there is an unbreakable link between beauty and holiness. So let's remind ourselves that God is holy. That's good, Josiah. You can move to the, to the next slide. God is holy. Is holy the most important biblical word to describe God? God has given many descriptions in the Bible, but holiness seems to be fundamental to all of them. God's love is holy love. God's wrath is holy wrath. God's mercy is holy. God's word is holy. His justice is holy. His mercy is holy. God's grace is holy grace. In scripture, in two places, God is described as holy, holy, holy. One of them we read. This has been considered so important in Jewish and Christian theology that it has come to bear its own title. It's called the Trace Hagion, or the Three Times Holy. This represents a Hebrew literary device in which a word would be emphasized by repeating it. We find this multiple times in the Hebrew scriptures, but it's not translated directly because it doesn't make much sense in English. Nowadays, if we want to emphasize something that we are writing, we can italicize it or underline it or boldface it. But the ancient Hebrew writers, the prophets and the scribes, they didn't have any of these tools, so they would simply write the word they wanted to emphasize a second time. So if a young Hebrew gentleman were writing a letter to his betrothed and really wanted to let her know how he felt, he might say or write, I love you. But if he really wanted to emphasize his feelings, he might write, I love, love you. Or maybe, I love you, you. 
In English, he might say, I really love you, or I love only you. To take it one step further, if a Hebrew wanted to take a word and put as much emphasis on it as can possibly be conceived in the imagination of man, he would repeat the word three times. And there is only one word describing God in all the scriptures that is put into that literary category, and that word is holy. It happens twice, once in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and once in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And these two passages are very closely intertwined. So what is holiness? The answer to this question has been the subject of hundreds of books by Christian theologians and even others from other religions. If you are interested in this particular topic, the culmination of centuries of thought on this issue is presented in a book called The Idea of the Holy, or Das Heilige. It was written originally in German by Rudolf Otto, The Idea of the Holy. But I am not in the least bit interested this morning in presenting a long series of man's ideas about the holy. Rather, I would like to draw us into thinking about what the Bible teaches us about the relationship between God's holiness and Christian worship. To do that, though, I have to go on a brief rabbit trail and try to describe what is meant by the word holy. To begin with, we'll look at the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that is translated as holy. That word is kadesh. And its fundamental meaning is set apart, or other. The Greek New Testament word has essentially the same meaning. We get a sort of visual representation of holiness when we consider the tabernacle of Moses, where a curtain, very thick, separates the court of cleansing and sacrifice from the holy place. It's separated. It's something different behind there. And then there's another curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. That's, again, something different, something other, something set apart. Only the high priest was permitted that past that curtain, and only once a year with the blood of atonement, which he would sprinkle on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. The areas on either side of the curtain are not the same. It is not like a fence between two properties. The curtain was not placed into a single room to split the room into two. Rather, there was something fundamentally different, set apart, and even inaccessible about that which is on the other side of the curtain. You and I often think of holiness as moral goodness or moral purity especially when we consider God's words, be holy, for I am holy, which to me is one of the most intimidating commands in Scripture. And this is true to an important degree, but as the Scriptures develop the idea of holiness, right from Genesis right through, there seems to be another quality about holiness that is very difficult to put into words or even to imagine. There is something else going on that strikes the worshiper in the deepest part of their being. 
In that book I just mentioned, The Idea of the Holy, Professor Otto has to invent a word to describe this, and he calls it the numinous. But if we start delving into non-scriptural words at this point, I'm just going to get confused. Um, and so we'll stick with the holy or the presence of God. What is the unique nature of Christian worship then? What makes Christian worship different? Billions of people all over the world gather at different times and at different places in different settings according to different traditions and they all partake in worship. What is it about what is happening here this morning, today, and, Christ and Christian churches like this all over the world that makes our worship unique and that makes our worship real and true worship of the one living God? Several weeks ago, Pastor Steve brought us a wonderful message from John chapter 4 telling us about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Jesus said something in that encounter that I would like to remind us of this morning. So if you will read with me, and I believe it will come up, uh, verses 21 through 24 of John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says to the woman at the well that she is worshipping what she does not know, along with all of her people. There is something that he calls worship happening, but it falls short of true spiritual worship in some way. They don't know what they worship. Whereas those who worship in spirit and truth worship what they know, because salvation is is of the Jews. Here I'll give us, I think, is what is a helpful quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, in which he's also trying to describe part of what makes Christian worship unique. Now, just remember, this is just a thought experiment. It's not like I believe in ghosts or anything. It's just a thought experiment. But I think he, he lays out very clearly why it is that Christian worship is different than other worship. So, quote, Suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. But if you were told there is a ghost in the next room and believed it, you would feel indeed what is often called fear, but of a different kind. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is primarily afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous, and the special kind of fear it excites may be called dread. 
With the uncanny, one has reached the fringes of something indescribable. Now suppose that you were simply told, there is a mighty spirit in the room, and you believed it. Your feelings would be even less like the mere fear of danger, but the disturbance would be so profound, you would feel wonder and a certain shrinking, a sense of inadequacy to cope with such a visitor and of prostration before it, an emotion which might be expressed in Shakespeare's words, under it my genius is rebuked. This feeling may be described as awe, and the object which excites it as something indescribable. Upon some reflection, I thought of what it might be like if we were able to travel back in time and visit the tabernacle. Actually, I think they've rebuilt one out in the wilderness there that you can visit if you go over there. But in any case, imagine you're traveling back in time and you visit the tabernacle. The first stage in entering the tabernacle would be to go through an opening in a high fence which surrounded the place of worship. There wasn't a curtain there, it was just an opening, and you could walk in and bring your sacrifice. So there you would be in the place where animal sacrifice is taking place, and parts of the animal are being burned. And there's also a place for washing prior to entering the holy place. Now, of course, only priests were permitted to enter the holy place after washing and being clothed in the proper garb. But imagine that you are permitted inside the holy place. You feel a certain sense of apprehension as you stand before that curtain. You're about to enter something different. Upon moving it aside and entering, the only light is coming from a menorah, that seven-stemmed candle holder, by whose light you also see a golden table laid with bread and an altar of incense from which comes a gentle but beautiful scent filling the entire room in contrast to the smells of slaughter and smoke and blood outside. The entire room is hung with the most beautiful tapestries in blue and purple and scarlet and gold with supports made of silver and clasps made of bronze. Finally, and this would be strictly forbidden, you are invited to go through the final curtain into the Holy of Holies, in which sits the Ark of the Covenant, covered by the mercy seat, where dwells what has been called the Shekinah glory of God. I believe that as you pass into each area, first through the opening into the place of sacrifice, then through the curtains, there would be an increasing sense of Something. Something. It's pretty hard to describe what it would be like, isn't it? In theology, this experience is so other. It's so unique from anything else we encounter in life that theologians have used a special term to describe that feeling we get, unlike any other. They call it the mysterium tremendum. And that roughly translates to the terrifying mystery, the terrifying mystery. We mentioned Isaiah 6 a short time ago, where we encounter this phrase, holy, holy, holy. 
Isaiah describes what he was experiencing in the presence of this one who was holy. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. Let's just consider that for a little bit. Prophets generally had two types of prophecies, blessing prophecies and woe prophecies. Usually the prophet would say, woe is Babylon, woe is Assyria, or even woe is Israel. But Isaiah here, when he is in the presence of God, says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am unraveling at the seams in the presence of God. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is the terrifying mystery. Peter had a similar experience when he first recognized Christ at the Sea of Galilee. Encountering the holy. Encountering the holy, as Isaiah did. What does it lead to? Worship for the Christian. When we look at the times in Scripture where prophets had an encounter with the living God, I think we can, broadly speaking, identify three things common to all of these experiences. Since I don't have words to call this what it is, when we go through that curtain, let's just think about what's happening to these prophets in Scripture. And I'll just give you three. There's who knows how many there are, but I'll just give you three. The first one I call the awe fullness of God. I didn't want to say the awesomeness. The reason I didn't want to say the awesomeness is because that word gets overused, and, and I think it's overused to the point where we don't understand it quite as, as much as we could. So I've called it the, the awe-fullness of God, not the awfulness, the awe-fullness of God. As is so often the case, I think the hymn writer of this old Southern American spiritual touched on this where he or she, whoever wrote it, when they wrote these words. Should come up. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sarah, were you there? Andy, were you there? Joe, were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when God raised him from the dead? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble. That's the awe-fullness of God. The next one I would call the overpoweringness of God. The overpoweringness of God. I might say that this is that sense we get when we're in the presence of the holy and we are reminded that we are merely dust. God has given many names in the Bible. The name that really captures this idea of the overpoweringness of God is the name 
El Shaddai, which is translated the Almighty, literally means the God who thunders. You've all had thunder and the whole building shook and you could feel it in your feet. That's what this word is. The God who thunders. This name for God is used most often in one book of the Old Testament. In fact, it's used in that one book more than the rest of the Old Testament put together. And that book is the book of Job. In that book, Job is devastated. He has been utterly wiped out in every way you can imagine. For 37 chapters, his friends come to him and say, hey, none of this would have happened to you if you hadn't done something terrible. Come on, confess what you've done. Job maintains his innocence, and he pleads that he might have his day in court to get answers from God as to why he's suffering so horribly. So after 37 chapters, God finally answers Job in a whirlwind. And he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Oh, this is El Shaddai. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? How did I manage to get that done without you around to tell me how to do it? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you, Job? And for two whole chapters, El Shaddai asks a series of devastating questions to Job. And at the end of those two chapters, God says to Job, Shall the one who contends with the almighty El Shaddai correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. And Job answers, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice but I will proceed no further. And we would think that would be the end of it, wouldn't we? But then God continues for two more chapters, absolutely eviscerating Job. Finally, in chapter 42, Job gives his answer to God. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, like we are this morning. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. This is the overpoweringness of God. This is an encounter with El Shaddai. The third and final one I, we might call the urgency of God. I didn't know what else to call it could call it the energy, but the urgency of God. This is what I might say is the knowledge that when we have discovered the holy, the holy has discovered us. If you travel to Mount Robson, let's say, 
and the sky is clear, and you can see the entire mount right to the snowy peak, you would say that it's awe-inspiring. It's full of awe. And maybe that its beauty is overwhelming. But there is no sense that you have that this great mountain knows you are there and sees you for what you truly are. That's totally lacking. That alone is reserved for our holy God. Beyond that, you know that in the presence of this one, as the Bible says, you are stripped and laid bare before him. There are no secrets before God. Now, if these three things, if this is all you know about the holy, you would just flee from his presence. You would run and not look back, and you would get out of there as fast as you possibly could, and that would be the end of that. But this is where Christ is revealed to us. Yes, the veil is torn, and we have access to the very presence of God, but that veil is the body of Christ, given willingly, sacrificially. Why? Because Jesus loves me. And Jesus loves you. And so, through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, we are invited into the presence of the Holy to fall prostrate at his feet and worship. Yes, he is awful and overpowering. And we are like a newborn babe laid bare before him. But in Christ... We are his child, and he longs to hold us in his hands and adopt us into his family because of Jesus and Jesus alone. This is worship. It is to be paralyzed by the need to flee from the presence of this one, but compelled by the greater need, the greater love to be in his presence because of his love in Christ. I'm going to close this message before we enter into Holy Communion with a story, and this is a true story, about a man named Reginald Heber. Has anyone ever heard of Reginald Heber? I didn't think so. I hadn't. Reginald Heber was born in 1783 into a wealthy English family. He was given an excellent education and eventually attended Oxford University, where he distinguished himself as a scholar of the highest caliber. After graduating from Oxford, uh, before he entered into a career, he had the finances, because of his wealthy family, to travel all over Europe and even further east, at which point he acquainted himself with various religious traditions because he was beginning to envision himself entering into a career as an Anglican clergyman. So he came back to England a couple of years later as a polished, sophisticated, well-rounded character. Pretty liberal in his outlook and pretty accommodating of a variety of different viewpoints. And he became ordained as an Anglican priest, which was a well-paying job and a very cushy job in those days. The only thing 
that really annoyed him was those crummy Methodists. Those Methodists were appealing to the dregs of English society. They were preaching on the street corners and out in the fields, away from the pomp and administration of the organized Anglican parishes where worship belonged. John Wesley, his brother Charles, traveled around fields and wherever they could get wherever they could get an ear to listen to them, and they preached to anyone who would listen. As much as Reginald Heber found this distasteful, he was also somehow captivated by the power that seemed to be displayed by this movement. Then, one of those Methodists wrote a hymn that touched Heber's heart and seemingly transformed him from the inside out. That Methodist's name was John Newton, and the hymn he wrote went like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. To make a long story longer, no, that's not true. To make a long story short, Reginald Heber left his post as an Anglican priest. He traveled to India as a missionary where he preached the gospel until his death at the age of 43. But before he died, he too wrote a hymn. And that hymn, some of you may have heard. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning, our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Revelation 4. Cherubim and seraphim, falling down before thee, which word and art and evermore shall be. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, in purity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Brothers and sisters in Christ, my practical application of this morning's scripture is very simple. Have we lost our awe of God when we gather to worship? How long has it been since you have felt overwhelmed knowing that you are in the presence of the Lord? Stripped bare. Have we lost that sense of urgency in being in the presence of our God, even knowing that we are dust, but are loved by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? 
I know there are ups and downs, even in our spiritual lives. But let's prepare our hearts each and every Sunday morning for our time of worship in spirit and in truth, beginning right now. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Father in heaven, you are holy. We sometimes, in the busyness of life, forget. We know it in our heads, we forget it in our hearts, who you are and what you have done. This morning, as we go to the communion table, we gather together around it, we pray that you would do a mighty work in each heart here that has come to worship that we would be reminded of your awe, that we would be overwhelmed by your presence with us, and that we would feel an urgent need to be in your presence because of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Father, as a church, we have often forgotten how solemn and how powerful worship is. I pray that this very simple scripture from Revelation 4 this morning would just be a little reminder that your spirit can use in our lives to approach you with solemn seriousness and with joy because of Jesus. We thank you for this time this morning together, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.